Our text this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 25. Verses 21 to 25. Hear now the word of the Lord that is inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word from the Apostle Peter. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us by it, that we would learn more of who Jesus is, that we would come to love him more and obey him more. We thank you, Lord, and we ask your blessing upon your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's kind of hard to think about it on a day like today when it's what, raining cats and dogs, buckets, however you want to say it. But when I think back to my youth, I always enjoyed playing games outside. Maybe you did as well. We didn't really have all of the various video games and computers and things, so there were any number of games that we used to play outside. You could play tag or hide and seek. And one of the games that we often played. Maybe you've done it when you were a child. Maybe you're doing it this week or last week. You're a child now. It's called Follow the Leader. You know that game. The group of children get together and someone is picked as the leader and they they follow him around and do what he does. That particular game was actually made even more famous by a famous film made by Disney, Peter Pan. You may recall it. There's a scene in there in which the children sing about following the leader. Some of you can already hear the tune in your head, right? We're following the leader. We're following the leader. Wherever, what? He may go. That's a little bit what the Christian life is like, except for on a more serious level. The Christian life is following your leader. And it's helpful to think about that game, because if you recall that game, it's not sufficient to just, if the leader walks over in that direction, you go in that general direction. No. If the leader runs, what do you do? You run. If the leader skips, you do what? You skip. If the leader goes backwards, you do what? You go backwards. It's not just getting to the place that's important. It's how you get to the place. It's imitation. And that's what the Christian's life is like. We are all on a journey together to be with the Lord, to be glorified 
and be in His presence. But we follow our leader, not just in the direction that He takes us, but in the way in which He takes us. And Peter describes that here to his congregation. It's appropriate. It may seem a bit odd, stuck here at the end of chapter 2. We've just talked about living our lives out in in a gospel way before the government and living our lives out in a gospel way at work. In two weeks, we'll look at living our lives out in marriage in two parts. First, ladies first, and then gentlemen. And it seems odd that this is stuck in the middle, but it really isn't, because it describes for us how we are to do all of these things. We're to do it in an imitative fashion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning I'd like us to see three things. First, I'd like us to see the Christian's call to follow. The call to follow. And then secondly, I'd like us to look at the one that we follow. That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a call to follow, but there's also one that we follow. And then finally, Peter wraps up this segment here by describing for us the reason that we follow. So the call to follow, the one that we follow, and the reason that we follow. Well, let's dive in then here and look right at beginning at verse 21 at the call to follow. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So if we're reading this scripture... If we're looking at it out of context, we might be confused, but we've been going through this passage, and as we look at it, we see, for to this you have been called. And we immediately think about, what is the this? We look back very briefly, and we look at verse 20, and 20 tells us, verse 20 tells us, for what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For it is to this you have been called, namely, to do good and to suffer for it. You see, Peter is drawing on his own experience and on the experience of the congregation that he is speaking to. I dare say it's an experience that all of us can identify with at some level. We are suffering because we have done good. Perhaps it's the opportunity in which you had to tell the truth instead of lie, and others weren't appreciative of it. Perhaps you were honest instead of dishonest, and others thought that you were foolish. You see, Peter knows that there is a great difficulty involved with suffering when we have done good. And he has just described that for us in verse 20, and the immediate question that comes to our mind is why? It's a practical question. Peter says, this is a really good thing if you do good and suffer for it. And we can almost imagine the congregation scratching their head and going, Peter, why is that? Run that by me again. I don't understand. You're saying if I'm obeying God and obeying his law, I'm going to suffer? And that's a good thing? I don't get that. And so Peter then follows up with this reasoning because he describes for us Jesus' suffering. That our call is to follow Jesus in his suffering. 
This is important to us. It is part and parcel of the gospel. Because we all want to hear the first part of Peter's command. That is to do good. But we don't like to hear the second part, which is, and suffer for it. You see, Peter is describing for us the gospel in a nutshell. That our final reward is through suffering. Now, we need to have something cleared up for us. You see, often we look at life and we look at its difficulties, illnesses, circumstances that are difficult, conflict. And we see those difficulties and sufferings as a detour in our lives. We look at our lives as a gospel journey from point A to point B, and suffering is a detour. It takes us off the path. And we have to figure out, how do we get back on? Oftentimes, especially in our day and age, especially in America, especially as we have been blessed with so much materially, when we have tragedy and difficulty, our first question to ourselves is, well, what did I do wrong? How have I sinned? And the second question that follows quickly on its heels is, how can I fix that so I can stop the suffering? I'm suffering, so I must have done something wrong, and I need to go about and do what I can to fix it so I can get on the right path. You don't believe me? Turn on your television. 98% of what passes for Christian television teaches that theology day in and day out. Is your life bad? It's your fault. You're sinning. Do this, and God will fix it and bless you. Follow these steps, and God will bless you. But you see, Peter says, suffering is not a detour. It is a part of the gospel journey itself. It's part of God's design and plan. And he says to us, if you are in the midst of suffering and difficulty, stop looking for an easy fix. Stop looking for the magic bullet that will uncover a certain sin and will allow you to live the perfectly blessed life without any suffering. He says, suffering is a part of God's plan. Look at the language that he uses. For to this you have been called. Yes, it's that strong of a word. It's the same word that he used in chapter 1 when talking about our election, our calling. Peter might put it this way. As certain as you are today of your salvation... As certain as you are of God's unfailing love, so be certain that suffering is a part of your life. You cannot avoid it. It is not something that only comes to second-tier Christians, weak Christians who don't know how to live the victorious life. And if we think about that honestly, that's a great encouragement to us, isn't it? That it's not our fault that we're in the midst of difficulties. That maybe there's something else involved here. That God has a plan in the midst of my suffering. I know He has a plan because He's called me to this. What might be involved here? Well, I think it's picking up again, as we've said, this theme for this whole section is chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 about doing good works in front of the world that they might glorify God in the day of visitation. If we think about it this way, that godly conduct in the face of injustice 
wins unbelievers to the faith. Let me say that again. Godly conduct in the midst of unjust suffering wins others to the faith. It's a means that God uses to display the gospel. I mean, if we think about it, someone who displays good conduct is pleasant. Someone who thinks that everything is okay when life is showering blessing upon blessing upon them is ordinary, right? And someone who displays bad conduct in the midst of suffering is again ordinary. We expect someone to be miserable when they're having a bad day, don't we? As a matter of fact, we excuse it. We say, well, you're just having a bad day. But if someone is godly in the midst of unjust suffering, people stop and take a look. What is with him? How is she like that? And it gives the gospel an opportunity to shine forth. And this call to follow is not just to follow Jesus in his suffering, but to follow Jesus in his example, to follow Jesus' example. You see, we're called to this kind of suffering. It's a part and parcel of our gospel journey because the Bible verse that tells us that the servant is not above his master is true. What does that mean? It means plain and simple. Why do you expect to have more blessings than Jesus. Have you behaved better than Christ? Have you kept the law better? Have you prayed more? Do you know the scriptures more? Are you less selfish? But you see, our Lord who lived the perfect life, who put that life as an example before us, had suffering as a part and parcel of his life. It was appointed to him. For you have been called to this because Christ also suffered for you. Do you notice how Peter links those two things? He's drawing us in by showing us that Jesus suffered for us, which we are grateful for. We spoke of it earlier this morning. Well, if you're grateful for that, you must be grateful that you are called also to suffer. For the two things go together. Does this sound foolish to you? If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, this may seem like just Pollyanna thinking. Permanent rose-colored glasses. Well, you know, life is miserable, so this is what these Christians do to get through it. No. This is a gospel call to stop, to put that off, and to believe in the one who has suffered. Believe in the one who put others ahead of himself. Believe in the one who spoke all the true things of God. You see, Peter is calling us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer and unbeliever alike. For only in Jesus Christ can we find meaning and solution. You see, Jesus suffered, and Jesus suffered in a context that was the worst imaginable. It was suffering in the context of a hostile world, an unjust suffering. He never did anything to deserve suffering. And his response was to give us an example of not trading blow for blow. This is extremely difficult. I think of this example. How many of you recall, I think it was about a year and a half ago, 
that the head of the Red Cross in Iraq was kidnapped. You recall that? It was on the news over and over again. And if you're like me, there may have been times when you saw that, that it just made your blood boil. Right? Because you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. Here's a non-combatant, a woman, who is there solely to help those who are hurting. And these villains have kidnapped her and are threatening to hurt her. And it's easy to look at the television screen and to say, I hope that they catch them quickly and that they hang them. I want justice here. It's very difficult in that circumstance to praise God, to trust God, to put it aside. A circumstance that cries out for justice. That makes us want to cry out Fix this. Give me what I deserve. Give her what she deserves. Have you felt like that? When others attack you, when circumstances seem to attack you, it should be natural to you because in Peter's day, it was very common. You see, in Peter's day, if you were innocent, one of the ways in which you showed that you were innocent was by complaining and protesting loudly that you were innocent. If you were silent, it was taken as guilt. Those who were guilty kept quiet. Those who were innocent screamed to the heavens, it's not me, I'm innocent. That's so ingrained in our culture that that's the main reason for the famous Miranda warnings. You know those warnings. You can't watch any TV that has to do with the police without hearing them. You may not have ever gone to law school or been a policeman, and you can recite them by heart. You have the right what? To remain silent. You have a right to an attorney. If you can't afford one, one will be provided for you. Why do they tell you you have the right to remain silent? It's because silence in front of the police was being used as evidence of guilt along this historical lines. And they said, no, no, you have the right to remain silent. And that's the situation in which our Lord was faced. He's in a culture in which if you're innocent, you protest your innocence all the time. But the example that he gives to us is we don't need to protest our innocence. We don't need always to wear our Christianity on a sleeve. We don't always need to remind others of how much in God's will we are in the middle of our difficulties. We can follow the example of our Lord Jesus Christ. And following that example, we follow in His steps. You notice how Peter says this, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. You see, Jesus as our example is not just something that we hold up and look at Jesus and say, oh, what a wonderful person Jesus was. The world's happy to do that. To have Jesus as an example somewhere up on a shelf next to Buddha and Gandhi and all of these other persons. But you see, Peter won't let us do that. He says, Jesus left you an example that you might follow him in his steps. If Jesus is going to be your example, you must act. There's a purpose clause here. He's an example for a reason, so that we might follow him in his patience, humility, 
integrity, and honesty. We're to follow after our Lord Jesus Christ in all that He does in His life. Now, that doesn't mean that we're to try and follow Jesus to the same degree of His sufferings or to walk in His steps so that we do exactly what He did. Every year around Easter, there are misguided souls in various third world nations that think that they can get closer to God by constructing a cross of about the same width, height, and weight as our Lord had, and by carrying it down an area that is about as long as our Lord carried it, while others walk behind them and whip them with whips, real whips. And they think somehow that brings them closer to God. But you see, that's not what Peter's getting at here. In following the footsteps of our Lord, we are called to follow his example, to go after his pattern. The word here for example that Peter uses is a very interesting one. It's one that I think, actually, the kids will probably understand more than anything else. Some of you are young enough that you're doing this now. Some of you maybe did this a few years ago. Do you remember when you started to learn writing? First printing, and then cursive. Now, it doesn't matter whether you went to a private school, a public school, or home school. My guess is one of the ways in which you learned writing was you had a sheet with the letter on it, and you started by drawing over the letter. A, B, C, right? Mom or dad or your teacher didn't just put a sheet that was blank in front of you. You traced over the letters so you could learn how to write. That's what this example is. It's the word that was used for tracing over letters. You're to follow the pattern. To go where the letter goes. The letter forms a pattern for you to write. So it is with our Lord Jesus. His life forms a pattern for our life. As Jesus is kind, we are called to be kind. As Jesus is forgiving, we are called to be forgiving. As Jesus is honest and true, we are called to be honest and true. You see, he is a pattern, an example that has been set before us, and we are to follow in his steps. Well, who is this one, then, that we are to follow? We know we're called to suffering. We know we're called to follow. But who is the one that we follow? Well, Peter tells us, beginning in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The first thing we know about this one that we follow is that he is sinless. He is the sinless one. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter is quoting here from Isaiah 53, 9. Now, it would seem to me that many of us are familiar with the messianic passage, Isaiah 53, about our Lord being led as a sheep to slaughter, about how No deceit was found in his mouth. And as we look at Isaiah 53, we immediately identify it with Jesus Christ. Perhaps some of you have even had opportunity in witnessing to those who are Jewish to point out in their own Bible, look, here's Jesus. The interesting thing is that the reason that we make that connection is because of Peter. Yes. Virtually every quote, allusion, or reference 
that has to do in the New Testament with Jesus being identified with Isaiah 53 occurs in this book of 1 Peter. It, it occurs no less than five times in this passage that we're looking at. You see, Peter wants us to strongly identify with the suffering one, with the one who was silent, with the one who was unblemished, the unblemished lamb. If there ever was anyone who suffered unjustly, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. He couldn't possibly suffer justly because he never sinned. Peter's also getting back to his way of pastoral advice. You recall that I've said that on many occasions, Peter comes right at us pastorally and doesn't allow us any excuses. He's doing it here. Because you see, Jesus' sinlessness removes all of our complaining. How can we complain about what the Lord has called us to when Jesus has gone there? And he unjustly, because he knew no sin. You see, when he was confronted with sin, his mouth was silent. There there was no deceit in his mouth. He was not required to speak up. He waited upon the Lord. That's what we're called to do. As God's people, to follow his example, to follow in his steps, to follow him in his suffering, to trust to the Lord. And Peter makes this clear because Jesus is not just the sinless one, he is also the patient one. Look at what he says in verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Now, revile is kind of a a fancy word here. It's kind of an old King James word. And so... Especially for the children, you might think of it in this way. When others, in a mean, in as mean a way as possible, made fun of Jesus, he didn't respond. Have you ever had that happen to you? I'm sure there's never been a family here in which the siblings haven't played the game, which is, well, you're a... No, well, you're a, well, what about you? You're this. You're that name. You're this, back and forth, back and forth. It's like a tennis match, right? No one's ever had that happen in their home. I'm sure also that the adults, married couples, you've never had that experience where you've gone back and forth, right? You can't identify at all with it. I know I can't. No. We all experience that. But you see, Jesus did not... You know, it's like this. You've seen this. It's in almost any action movie. It's that scene near the end where the hero fights the main bad guy. Not the minor bad guys, but the main bad guy. And usually it's some form of fist fight. And they go toe-to-toe, right, right, left, left, back, forth, back, forth. Each hitting each other, one, 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 until the hero finally wins. What Peter says is, That is the way of power and of the world. It's not the way of the gospel. Because our Lord didn't feel the necessity of going toe-to-toe with his enemies. Even though we know he was more powerful than they were. You remember the scripture says that if he would have desired, he could have called down legions of angels to protect him. He was God himself, the stiller of oceans, creator of the world. And yet, when he was mocked, he did not feel that he needed to mock back. 
He didn't even threaten, Peter says. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Think about that for a minute. We see this all the time, again, in in films and television shows and books and even in our experience. Someone does something mean, wrong, and unjust. And the response is, well, you just wait, you'll get yours. We have a cliche, don't we? What goes around, comes around. And we take comfort in that, and we use it, and we throw it out all the time. When our Lord was on the cross, He could have easily said, you need to repent now, or you will be in hell. And that's not a threat. That's a promise. But he was silent. He did not feel the need to threaten. It was not in his nature. Why didn't he? How can our Lord do that? Is it simply because he's God? Is it something that he's so different than we are that we cannot partake of that? We can't follow in his steps in those ways. We just can't go there. No. Peter answers that question for us as well. For he says, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you see what Peter just did? He just took away another excuse that we might have. Well, we're not Jesus. We all can't be perfect. So it's part of my personality to threaten and yell at people. No. He says, the reason that our Lord could do that is because he entrusted himself to God. The very thing that we are called to do. You see, Jesus did what you do. The only difference is he did it perfectly. That's the only difference. We're called to follow in his steps. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we will lag behind. But we are called to that same kind of trust. Now, that kind of trust is not a who cares attitude. Well, it'll all work out in the end. I guess these things happen. There was a philosophy in Peter's day called Stoicism, in which suffering was pushed off by simply saying, that's the way the world is. But you see, that's not what Peter is doing here. It's an active trust in God that our Lord has. It's a belief in the promises of God. As Christians, we are not called to just grit through it and bear it. We're called to continually entrust ourselves to God. The language there is very specific. It's not something that Jesus did just once on the cross. It's not something that Jesus did when he was having a very good day. It's not just something that Jesus did when others around him were making it easy. It's something that he did every day of his life. That's what we are called to do. This is the one that we follow. He is sinless, he is patient, and he is trusting. So, why do we do this? Peter doesn't leave us without a strong motivation here at the end of this passage. He's described the fact that we're called to follow our Lord in suffering. He's described who Jesus is. And then he says this in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a reason that we follow our Lord. And the first reason is the one that probably comes first to your mind. That's why it comes to Peter's. The first reason is that he bore our sins. Jesus' suffering had a purpose. And more than just a generic purpose, this suffering that we are to follow, all that Jesus endured had a direct purpose. It was for you, Christian. It was for me. That's the reason that Jesus suffered. That's the reason that he was reviled. That's the reason that he was provoked. For you and for me. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Do you notice what Peter does here? He lifts up the cross of Jesus Christ as the prime object of our direction and love. He says, don't gaze in this journey that you're on upon the future reward and glory. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has done for you. That is what pushes you on in the journey. Not the reward, but knowing what your Lord has done for you. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And because he has borne our sins, we are called to flee from sin. That we might die to sin, Peter says. One commentator puts it this way. He says, we must be utterly alienated from sin. Be as far away from sin as we can. Because of what Jesus has done for us. He has forgiven our sins. He has borne our sins in his own body. But he has done more than that, hasn't he? Because the gospel is not just that we have a clean slate. It's not just that our sins are forgiven, but it's also that we are now to live to righteousness. You see, he made us alive. (coughs) He didn't just bear our sins. He made us alive. We don't have just mere forgiveness. We have empowerment now in our life. We can live to righteousness. You see, the Christian life is inherently the victorious life. It's not victorious because there's an absence of suffering. It's victorious because we can live to righteousness through the power of Christ, empowering us by the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts and minds and wills. That is real hope. That is real blessing in the midst of miserable days when it seems like everybody and their dog is kicking you when you're down. It's to remember that we are empowered by Christ not only to die to sin, but to live under righteousness. And we're empowered to live under righteousness for the purpose that Peter's been talking about. So that we might have obedience and others might see the glory of the gospel in our lives. You see, it's for the sake of the gospel that Jesus not only suffered, but that he lived. That we might die to sin and live under righteousness. He has borne our sins. He has made us alive. And the final verse tells us that he is also our leader. Do you see that? 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter brings it back to authority. You'll notice the last few weeks we were talking about being under authority, which is ultimately under God's authority. Peter presses the point again here that the reason why we do this is because Jesus is our leader. He is our shepherd. We were straying like sheep. Have you ever felt lost? Perhaps sometimes you've been lost and don't know it. But then there are other times, maybe when you were a child, you were lost and you knew it. You couldn't find mom and dad. And terror came over you. Fear gripped your heart. Perhaps you're experiencing that now. You might not be lost in a mall somewhere, but you might feel lost at work. You might feel lost under a financial burden. You might feel lost waiting for medical reports to come back. You might feel lost because you can't do anything for a loved one. You see, if you feel like that, Peter says, Jesus is there for you. He is the finder of lost sheep. No matter what part of your heart is lost, no matter what you think you can't go on about, Jesus can bring you to himself. And he tells you that you're found and that you're safe. And that even if you experience difficulties, you don't need to fear Because he's been there before you. He knows heartache. He knows injustice. He knows suffering and pain. And he is your leader. There's another thing to think about as well. And that is those of us that are leaders. Elders. Deacons. Fathers. Parents. Is that the kind of overseer and leader that you strive to be? Are you willing to sacrifice so that others might be safe and found and blessed? Is that what we desire our ministry to be noted for? Because if it is, others will see Jesus. When we are willing, in our oversight, not to press our own rights, but to sacrifice. That is the gospel and the call of the gospel. So what does all this mean for us, just very briefly? Three thoughts to think about. The first is is that Peter tells us we must follow Jesus. Because that is the gospel. Follow me, our Lord says. But... The good news is not just follow me, it's that Jesus makes it possible for us to follow him. He gives us the power that we need to live unto righteousness and to die to sin. And then thirdly, the way in which we follow him is by trusting God, by showing patience and endurance as life throws us lemons, curveballs, burrs, hangnails, stubbed toes. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our only source of perseverance. If you're having struggles today, Christian, that is the place to look, Peter says. For there are found stores 
of goodness, grace, and mercy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has blessed us with every blessing in heavenly places. We thank you that he has given us an example and empowered us to live a life of obedience. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.